Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase a 12-step program that assists recovery from compulsive behaviours. By sharing lived experience, we hope that others can understand that recovery is a realistic hope and that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guests are members of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, and they'll be sharing their story of recovery from food addiction. So, Natalie and Sarah, welcome to the Living Free Show today. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bill. So, I'll start with you, Natalie. We usually start by talking about growing up and family and sort of the influences on you as a child. So, what was your early life like? I grew up in France, and I have very good memories of my childhood, despite what was going on um, uh, around me. Um, I can think of two things. First of all, is my um, was my dad. My dad. So we had addiction in in the family, and my dad was a gambler. It was really hidden from me and my sister, though. Like I had, I didn't really see it at the time, but uh, but I know he was. I mean, now I know that he was a gambler, and I found that out later. And also the fact that my parents divorced. Um, I think I was about eight years old when my parents divorced, and I if. I can't say anything about my parents' divorce. It was like a, a, a good divorce in the sense that they, they did the divorce very amicably. And, um, but I grew up with my mom and my sister and we used to go and spend every second weekend and every half of holidays with my dad. But I was extremely close to my mom and, and my sister. But that's the, the good memories that I have uh, from, from that part. I remember being um, a happy child. At the same time, though, I was extremely shy and very sensitive, very, very sensitive. I, I remember going to bed at night and crying, and my mom would ask me, why are you crying, Natalie? And I would tell her, and it's like, I'm thinking of all the animals that are in the street and, and, and don't have food. I'm, 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 I'm thinking of all the poor people who don't have food. I was just like really concerned about, about what was happening in the world or from what I knew of, of my world. But I, so I have one sister, 18 months um, older than I, and we've always been very close. There was parts when I was in my full food addiction, I wasn't as close as, as her. I'll talk about that later. But as a child, I were very close to her and she was my best friend. And that's when I said that, that brings me to my first memory of how I used food. I used to love food. I used to, you know, growing up in France, food always has been very, very important. And one year, my sister, she had um, a lot of health problem and she had to spend a summer in hospital. So she went to hospital and my mom stayed with her. And so I was sent to my great grandmother's house with my grandfather. And although I was very close to my grandfather, I re vividly remember those holidays being very lonely. I didn't have my best friend and I was quite bored. And that summer I ate and I ate a lot. And it was the special morning tea, the, the extra treats, the, the, the big dessert and a lot of sugar. I, I really, I was really, sugar seemed to be the thing that I would, I would go to. And at the end of those holidays, I went back home and I did put on, on a lot of weight. So yeah, that's, that's at the time, I didn't realize that I was using food to medicate and numb, numb those feelings of, of loneliness. But looking back, that's exactly what I was doing. Also in my, uh, on my dad's side, my grandfather was obese. One of my aunt was obese. So there was a lot of yeah, obesity in the family. 
And somehow I was the spitting image of my dad. And um, I was seen in the family and it's like, oh, Natalie is like on that side, she will be a big girl. I had like, I had a stamp already. I was labeled as being, as being big. And as a little girl, I was a little bit chubby. I wasn't obese, but I was a little bit chubby. And I have no memories, but my mom told me the story that the family doctor put me on a diet and I was very young. I was maybe five. And the doctor said to my mom, if you don't want Natalie to become like your father-in-law, you, you better put her on a diet now. So I guess there was that focus on, on me being bigger. My sister didn't have that, that problem. She was, she was a spitting image of my mom and my mom was very petite. Yeah, so food, food and diet um, took, took a, big, a, a big place in my, in, in my childhood. So what sort of diets did the doctor put you on? Well, it was actually a, a, a lot of restriction, a lot of restriction um, uh, eating um, because I think quantities was definitely my thing because and I, I, I liked everything. I mean, I liked healthy food and I liked non-healthy food. So it was um, restricting uh, quantities and removing junk food, which was actually probably a, a healthy, a healthy diet. But I found it hard because I loved, I loved my treats. I loved my sugar. So, um, yeah, I, I, I remember once being in a, in a bakery with my mom and she was buying the afternoon tea. And I, was, I told her in, in the bakery, it's like, mama, I, I, need, I need two of those. I need one for the morning and one for the afternoon. And, um, and there was a few adults in the bakery and they all laughed. They thought it was funny, but it was just like, I'm, saying, no, I'm serious. I need, you know, I need, I need enough. So yeah, but that was the, that's the kind of diet that I was on. And I actually, I can't remember he, it lasted too, too long. So what's an example of what you liked or your, your eating when you were a child, when you were let free? Definitely sweets and desserts. So um, biscuits. Um, cakes, you know, any anything, anything sugary. I couldn't, I couldn't have enough of that. But at the same time, as I said, I loved savory as well. So I used to, I used to have big portions. You know, it's quite interesting for me to to look back at those at those times because later on, as an adult, I always said, oh, you know, I never ate too much. But as a child, it was definitely um, quantities. Every holidays, I used to spend my, my holidays at my grandparents and, uh, and the pleasure of my grandmother was to cook for us. And she was a great cook. Um, so, you know, meat with sauce and uh, quite a lot of carbohydrates, lovely, fresh bread, all of it, all of it I liked. <laughs> okay, thanks. And how about you, Sarah? What was growing up like for you? Growing up for me was was pretty wonderful um, in in many ways and also challenging. I, I was raised in 1980s suburban Melbourne. I was the child of, I guess, upwardly mobile parents, um, privileged, educated. My father was a partner in his own law firm. Um, my mum had, I guess, the the you know the means to be a stay at home mum. She was a trained nurse, but she stayed at home to look after my big brother and I. We were really blessed. I, I have really fond memories of my early childhood, lots of love, lots of intellectual and creative stimulation. Um, my parents made a lot of sacrifices to give us a great education. And so I guess on the surface, everything looked pretty wonderful. But behind closed doors, my father was a really high-functioning drug addict and alcoholic. So I think I learned pretty early what's a very important lesson for addicts in training, which is that we had, you know, a, a face that we put forth to the outside world and, you know, a, a different kind of more authentic reality that went on behind closed doors and was, and was secret. Yeah, I remember learning really, really early to, to kind of bolster that mask that, you know, it was just implicit that we were, you know, there were things that went on that we didn't talk about outside. And, you know, I remember as a little girl in probably 1985 going for a little sleepover at my at my school friend's home and and this was the days when people would roll their own cigarettes they'd all have a little pouch of tobacco and I remember watching 
my little friend's father roll himself a cigarette and part of me wanted to say aren't you going to put the green stuff in it and then something in me even as a tiny little five-year-old child I just intuitively knew that we don't talk about those things that those are secrets you know in terms of my relationship with food billets it's really interesting because my big brother you know he was the one who got a lot of attention for his weight I remember him being taken to Jenny Craig in our childhood. He, you know, he was always the one that carried extra weight on his body. I remember, you know, when we were going to get a treat, my mother would take us to the health food store and get us, you know, like carob and soy milk. And it was not particularly sexy food for a child. But then I remember when my dad would entertain and have parties, which were you know, in my childhood memories, really fun, like smoky haze and 70s rock music in the air and lots of people letting loose and there'd be lots of food because these grown-ups would get the munchies and it would be the good stuff. And I remember lighting up on all levels when I could get my hands on really good processed sugary sweets. And I think it was about the age of eight when I had this light bulb moment where I decided... I'm going to buy myself a family block of Cadbury chocolate and I'm not going to tell my family, you know, I knew they knew they were designed to be shared amongst a family, but I thought if I don't tell my family, I don't have to share it with my family, you know, as, as with many homes where there is the disease of addiction and alcoholism, things were pretty tumultuous. And I had strategically asked for a lock on my bedroom door just so I could have my own little refuge from all of that, chaos outside in the living room the kitchen and all over the place and and so I had the perfect little hiding spot for me to take my my sugary treat and I remember just the anticipation and the sense of being subversive that I had as I went down to the local milk bar this is the days of milk bars and you know got myself that big block of chocolate and scuttled back to my room and yeah I remember it it took me a whole weekend to furtively eat that that product um, and I felt bloated and I felt ill and I had to chip away at it and then make an appearance occasionally. But by Sunday night, by the time it, you know, Sunday night rolled around at the end of that weekend, I'd done it. I'd finished it. And I really felt this strange sense of accomplishment. I felt like a big girl. I felt like I had a secret that no one could take away from me. And um, one of the reasons I know I'm an addict is because yeah, by the end of my food addiction, I was eating maybe two of those as part of massive binges. Like that was just a drop in the ocean of huge binges. What you, you know, what I had to chip away at slowly, but surely had just become something that didn't even touch the sides as my disease progressed. So yeah, it's, I I definitely am a food addict. So what about school and friendships? How did, how did your secretive life interfere with that? You know, it's interesting. I was a pretty gregarious child. I was, my my father's a lawyer, my whole family are full of, full of lawyers. And I think that kind of, you know, argumentative cerebral nature was passed down to me, even though that's not my chosen career. And so I was, you know, I was, I was chosen to perform in the little school play because I had the loudest voice in grade two. You know, I was pretty confident on the outside, but I think my insecurities really played out between my ears. Um, When I was alone, I would be consumed with comparing myself to my friends, feeling really jealous at what I perceived to be their functional families. And particularly, I felt consumed with comparing my, my exterior to theirs. I always had these very pretty friends who were thin and lithe. And I just felt, I felt really less than um, in terms of my attractiveness. I had these glasses I was tall for my age and I just I just felt different but you would never know it because if you knew it you might understand that I had a weakness and if you knew I had a weakness you might exploit it so it was all a very confident outward show to the rest of the world. Yes very common of children in alcoholic families to um, to be aware that any weakness can be used against them. Sure is. (laughs) So when did food become a an issue for you in in your relationship with other people? It was really progressive. And I think what what happened as I as I grew up, even as a as a teenager and then a young adult, before it became 
between me and others. It was just me and the food. What came very strongly was control. I just became very controlling. Um, well, I've discovered control. I was like, hey, I can, I can control a lot of things. And I was controlling what I was doing at school. I was controlling who I was seeing. And I was controlling what I was eating. I was controlling how... I was uh, how to burn calories, how much I was exercising. I became body image, um, I had body image obsession and really, really controlling. And I think because of that, and I was really living in my head, that really cut me off connecting with others. So I think that's that, that the control, the, the control and the control of the food really affected the connection with my, with the people around me. Even in high school, I was still a high-functioning person, didn't really show there. I had, I had lots of friends. I still was shy. I was still sensitive. I was still, I mean, I was very insecure. Of course, you know, teenage years, just not knowing who I was or, or, or searching for who I was. I was really insecure. And I think when it really started to affect me was as an adult, definitely. As an adult, I um, food started to take more and more space in my head. So what to eat, when to eat it, how to eat it, how to get rid of it, how to burn the calories. That's all that was in my, in my, in my head and stopped me to be completely present and connected with anyone, anyone around me. And it really started to affect my relationship with my family. And also, you know, parallel to that was my journey in my life that, you know, I grew up in France, but then I studied in a, in a city that was further from where I used to live. And then from that city, I decided to go to, to England to, to learn English or to perfect my English. And then from then, I met my boyfriend who became my husband. And then from then, I moved to Australia. And I really did the geographical um, cure, you know, I, I've changed city, I've changed country, and then I've changed continent. If I want, if I wanted to go any further, I would have to change planet. And, or, or, or if I wanted to go any further, I would have been closer back home. You know, I, I did really the, the round, round the globe. And, and I think I was, I was trying to, I don't know if I want, trying to escape people, but I think I was, I was trying to escape myself, but unfortunately I took myself with me, you know, so I was there. I was there all the time, but that's that's the journey that I did, and um, I think that's when it really started to affect. I mean, to answer your question, when it really started to affect my relationship with people, I was um, a young adult. Okay, thanks. Uh, well, listen, we might take a short break there. i 
The Right Reasons by Carla Geneve, courtesy of the Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Get lost in science. Tune in to 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Natalie and Sarah, and we're talking about recovery from food addiction with the help of food addicts in Recovery Anonymous. So Sarah, we finished with you saying that you're a bit of a gangly kid. So how did things change for you when you sort of going through high school and leaving high school? Did you feel like you fitted in better or, or worse as you matured? Wow, it was a real roller coaster for me throughout high school, Bill. Um, and I love that you've taken the adjective gangly from what I shared because it's certainly not how I felt on the inside. I was definitely tall, but I felt chump chubby. I felt kind of really pudgy and just kind of wrong. Um, I hit puberty really early, earlier than most of my friends. And I, you know, I, I was five foot eight when I was 11. You know, I just felt really unusual compared to my mostly prepubescent friends around the age of 11 and 12. And, and I kind of had always been a bookish child, certainly not sporty, you know, pretty nerdy, pretty creative, interested in fiction and theatre. And I think what happened for me was when I was about gosh, I don't know, 10-ish, I um, convinced my parents to do two things for me. Let me get my ears pierced and let me get contact lenses. And I had this fantasy in my mind that it was going to be like one of those corny sitcoms where the nerdy girl kind of shakes out her hair and takes off her glasses and all the boys fell in love with me. And that is not what happened. <laughs> and, you know, that's all I really wanted. That was my heart's desire was to just kind of fit in and feel popular. And so I really kind of continued to fabricate that external confidence while inside I was I was deeply insecure and it was in my I think early to mid-teens that I started to starve myself my parents marriage ended it was not amicable it was really awful and my dad like basically moved his new girlfriend who was to become his second out of now four wives and um, she came and lived in our childhood home it was a really rough time and I just made this decision that I was going to give up food the way that people give up smoking. I started to severely restrict my calorie intake. I dropped a ton of weight. My periods stopped. 
yeah, I was very, very underweight at this, at this point in my, in my teens. And, you know, the adults in my life were kind of preoccupied with, with their stuff. I remember my uncle raising it with my mum once saying, I'm a bit worried about Sarah. She's lost a lot of weight. And my mum was just like, yeah, she's fine. No stress. She's, she eats sometimes. And I kind of went under the radar with all of that behavior. And yeah, I was deeply obsessed with restriction and deeply obsessed with exercise. Instead of socializing, I, I would like have a little gym buddy and we would go off to the, the school gym at lunchtime and do endless circuits around on the gym equipment. And yeah, my dream was just, it was the nineties heroin chic was kind of the, the ideal body. And my goal was to be as thin as possible. Yeah. I, I remember feeling, you know, pretty popular around that time. I had a lot of friends. I was getting invited to the right parties, but I just could not maintain that what I thought of as discipline around the food. I inevitably would, you know, have, I would pick up some sort of food and it, and it contained flour and sugar, which I now know is, is like an alcoholic picking up the first drink it triggered a craving in me but I'd I'd overeat and it would make me want to eat more or I'd undereat and it would make me want to starve more or I'd eat flour I'd eat sugar or a combination of all of those things and I found that once I went from starve mode I couldn't stop it was either I was going to be binging or starving and there was no middle ground for me so yeah again I had that outward appearance of popularity and kind of um, fitting in and, and being, you know, honestly, you know, quite um, a leader on the surface um, socially. But, yeah, behind closed doors, I was doing all of this self-harming behaviour. And by the end of my high school career, I was a, a bit of a mess. I discovered alcohol and drugs along the way alongside these crazy behaviours with food. And, you know, it took me to some really dark places. I ended up having to repeat Year 12 I had a couple of attempts on my own life. I, I hit a pretty awful rock bottom fairly quickly um, with the cocktail of a variety of addictions. And yeah, so what was my adolescence like in terms of fitting in? It was it was just a total roller coaster. Yeah, sounds like it. Yes, it's um, sort of sad. We judge our insides against people's outsides, and it's a very it's a very different comparison. But yeah, as teenagers, we don't realise that people feel similarly and they're hiding just like we're hiding. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Uh, so, Natalie, how about you? You've done your geographical to Australia. I assume you're working now and you're in a relationship. So how does that play out with food addiction? Well, it was so, yeah, it kept progressing. So I actually, so I moved, I moved to Australia because I met my boyfriend who is now still my husband. Uh, we met in, in London and I have been in, living in Australia now for 28 years. You know, every time I arrived in, in a new place, food was in the background, but I was too busy getting excited to something new. You know, I have a, a new place, a, a new, new life, new friends. And it was the same when I first arrived here. As soon as the routine settles in, settled in, that's when food would come back and come back um, bigger every time, bigger and bigger and bigger. Food and control, and especially eventually the fact that I lost control. Suddenly I just realized I just could not control what I was eating. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And I, I remember being quite scared because I think it was, if I can't control that, what, what can I control? I can't, and I'm not in charge of my own life. And I, that really scared me and made me very uncomfortable. So I got married. Yes, I, found, I, I, I worked and I'm still working. And I have two beautiful children. But that time, when I look at that period of my life with two young children, I felt and I often refer to that part of my life where I got really stuck. I just didn't want to get up in the morning. I would talk about my husband as being a workaholic. My kids would be um, highly annoying. I had a boring job. Nothing was going right for me. I was saying earlier, at one stage, I didn't talk to my sister for one year just because we had differences of, of opinion and, and I wasn't able to navigate that. And just um, 
I, I had many arguments with my mum. I mean, obviously long distance because they all stay still in France. Yes, and all that just because I was all completely obsessed by what I was eating. And because I could not control what I was eating any, anymore, then that's when I started to... I never talked about my body size, but I kept a normal body size for many, many years because, because I was controlling and I was over-exercising and I actually really damaged my body with that. But by the end, because I couldn't control it, eventually I put on weight. And every year I was putting on a kilo, every year. And I was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more miserable. And my life was getting shrunk. My life was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. That's where I was at just before I found FA. So what's it like having to prepare food and things for your family and you have a food addiction? What's that like? The beginning, I used to find it when I, when I first start, started program, I used to find it quite challenging um, because the food still would call me. And also because everything I was, I was a mother before anything else. And being a mother, I was a, a provider and it was very important for me. And I was showing that I was showing my love through cooking. So, you know, and suddenly, well, I was still cooking, but it wasn't recommended at the beginning to just go into really elaborated recipe and still not now. I find it challenging at the beginning. Uh, however, now, little by little, I didn't expect my family to eat exactly the same thing that I did. I didn't want to impose my way of eating to the rest of my family. However, it is a healthy way of eating. So more and more now, my family will eat the same thing that I eat, but they still have, even when I do the grocery shopping, you know, I buy things that I don't eat and it's for them. But it is so clear in my mind that it is their food and it's not mine so I'm, I'm actually very comfortable today with that but it, it has been a journey it was it was a, a way of adapting really to that way of cooking and being being around food but I can say today I am neutral around food it wasn't always the case but today I am so back to you Sarah making multiple attempts on your life must have awakened your family to your distress did it Absolutely. It, it did. And at the same time, they were also struggling with their own diseases of addiction and their own limitations. So while the intent, you know, was kind of, I think, um, directed more intensely towards me to help me and support me. Um, and I think the intention has always existed. I think my, my parents are fundamentally wonderful humans um, who love me very, very sincerely. But unfortunately, my dad's disease was at its zenith and that happened to coincide with me um you know leaving where I was hospitalized for six weeks after um the second suicide attempt and going to live with him and that was when my my disease kind of started to hit its rock bottom as his did as well so um it was not a particularly functional or, or happy time that was when I was repeating year 12 and I was 18 and it was my last chance to kind of I think, you know, um, get, get that ticket kind of, you know, out of there, that ticket to freedom, which was my education. My father had been bankrupt, I think, three times in my adolescence. And, you know, there weren't a lot of resources of any kind from my family except the, the wonderful sacrifices that they'd made to give me a great education. So, yeah, my, my goal was to try to get into a good university and, in quotation marks, make something of myself. So I felt an enormous sense of pressure in my final year of high school and and my food reflected that you know I um I have enormous anxiety and I started to sort of throw up my food and um you know I was ultimately uh, starving myself or or binging um it was all very unmanageable how did that change what was it what was the catalyst to change that um well it took a few more years of me eating addictively before I found the solution, I was lucky enough to discover the 12 steps by Alcoholics Anonymous. My dear father got clean and sober and I went along with him to a couple of meetings thinking it was really fabulous for him. And um, I certainly didn't need it, but, you know, um, clap, clap from the back row for me. 
And um, then when I realized that I was drinking or using drugs of some kind every day, I found myself nearly clean and sober as a 20-year-old. I want to say a 20-year-old child. I know I was a young adult at 20, but I certainly um, didn't feel like it. And what happened immediately when I put down those other substances is my eating just imploded. I was started to do a whole bunch of new things like carrying food around in my handbag, you know, hiding products, sugar products in my bedside drawer. So when I came to in the morning, I could reach over and start my day by putting something in my mouth. I would eat ice cream for breakfast. I mean, sometimes the thought of what was in my cupboard was the only thing that got me out of bed. And, you know, in that really dark place of being absolutely driven by this dogged obsession to eat, 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 I was introduced to a woman who was traveling from England and she was working a food solution. I tried a range of things to try to help me with my eating. I I tried psychology and psychiatry. I tried Western medicine, I tried alternative medicine, I tried new age spirituality, I tried feminist philosophy and just kind of giving the finger to society because obviously my body was perfect even if I had a few extra curves and it was the patriarchy's fault. So I had all of these ways that I was trying to to deal with the fact that I just simply couldn't control my eating and I tried to starve myself the way that I I seemed to to be able to in my teenage years and I, I just couldn't scramble my way back to that level of control and so I was introduced to this woman and she was working the FA program the program of food addicts in recovery anonymous and and I met her and she told me what she did and you know I thought it sounded really wonderful but a bit too intense and if I ever needed it I'd give her a call and and I remember two days later having the binge to end all binges and at the end of that day you know I used to do I used to go on what I would call a pub crawl, but with food, where I would go from cafe to restaurant to patisserie to candy bar to you know, food co-op to restaurant. I mean, it was just awful and I didn't want to do any of it. And at the end of the day, after one of those awful kind of food pub crawls, I remember kind of coming back home, feeling really demoralized and, and thinking to myself, I really didn't want to do that. I don't want to do this. And I keep on doing it. And I thought, I'm just going to give this woman a call and that woman became my first sponsor in FA and yeah that was back on the 13th of July 2003 and I haven't had to hurt myself with food since that day because of this program so I'm um, I'm deeply deeply grateful for that freedom. Thank you. Also we might take another short break there. Digging deep into my heart I've tried to free the words but I'm tongue-tied Tears on my bed, I cry, I guess we're over And oh, I need a fresh page I've been a mess and I'm ready for change Oh, I'm hanging on for closure when the song is done I'm a wreck but I'm still alive, I'm just Twisted 
was Tongue Tied by Tama, courtesy of the Australian Radio Music Airplay Project. If you care for a friend or someone in your family with disability, a medical condition, or who is elderly, Carer Gateway can help you get free support. Carer Gateway has lots of services to help carers. There's counselling, financial and peer support, and online courses that you can do at your own pace. They also have respite services to help you look after the person you care for while you take a break. Call Carer Gateway on 1800 422 737 or visit the website carergateway.gov.au. A 3CR supporter. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking with Natalie and Sarah uh, about recovery from their obsession with food with the help of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. So Natalie, we finished talking to you about cooking for the family and the difficulties of maintaining normal life whilst having a food obsession. So what caused you to look for help? Well, I feel like I've searched, I've searched for help for a long time. And I actually tried many of commercial diets. And I'm not saying that commercial diets don't work at all, but they certainly didn't work for me. And I think commercial diets don't work for food addicts because we are addicted to food. So after trying many different commercial diets, and, and I thought I was just like, I actually gave up to the idea and was like, well, I'm just going to be fat. You know, that's that's. That's probably what I'm supposed to be. But she wasn't, you know, I was, as I said, I was taken really, really unhappy. But at that time, I had changed jobs a few times. And I started to work in a community centre. And I used to be in contact with um, one person that used to come just to cover the program of the school holiday program. And so I used to see her once a term. And I saw that person transformed. Once a term, I could see that she, not only she was losing weight, but one of the last time I saw her, I saw a sparkle in her eyes that found I found very attractive, that I thought, wow, she, she looks so well, so healthy and so happy. And I didn't have the courage to ask her what she was doing, but my colleague did. And my colleague at the end of the day, she said, oh, did you see so-and-so, how fantastic she looks? And then I said, yes, she does. And she said, oh, I asked her what she's doing. She's doing something called FA. And I went, oh. And I was just, I just filed that in, in, in my brain. And she said, yes, it's, um, you get a food plan and a sponsor. That's the two things that my colleague said. And I was like, oh, okay. So that night I went home and I Googled FA, food addict, and .org. And there was a little questionnaire, 20 questions that I did. I think I answered yes to 17 of them. And then I saw they had, they had meetings and I decided to go to a meeting. And I have to say, even when I went to a meeting, I was like, oh, it's going to be another one of those, those diets. You know, I thought it would be. And actually, I was surprised that I, I was surprised that it didn't weigh me because I thought all those, you know, other diets, but they didn't weigh me. And I went to the meeting and I thought it was okay. But I left the meeting and I was like, I can't. I don't think I can do another one of those. I just can't. And I, and I said to myself, I'm just going to do one more. I'm going to try one more time by myself. And I just fell into a magazine with a diet. And I decided to do a diet like I starved myself for two weeks and didn't lose one gram. And I just had enough. And I was like, okay, I, I think by then 
I was so done that I realized it's like maybe I cannot do that on my own. And I don't know, I had that little voice that told me, just go back to that, those meetings, go back to FA. And I went to FA and I went to three meetings before I asked someone to sponsor me. And I never looked back, even though, you know, when I joined FA, I thought, I just want to lose a few kilos and then I'm out of here. And it was 10 and a half years ago. And, and I'm still here and I have no intention to, to, to leave. But also, to, that's how I found FA. But there was one moment, one situation when I thought I was probably one of my rock bottom. And I know I've shared that story a few times, but I was, so I was a mom and my daughter was probably four and my son was two and a half. And I have to say that I was, so I was unhappy. I was stuck and I was a raging mom. I was yelling and screaming and impatient. And I remember one day my little boy was in his high chair and I cannot even, I even cannot remember what my daughter did, but I started to yell and scream at my daughter. I remember I had the kitchen cloth in my, in my hand and I slammed it, slammed it in, on the counter. And I, you know, I got my face to her face and I was really yelling and screaming at her. And my daughter was looking at me like, what are you on about? You just, she just, she didn't seem, she didn't seem too bothered by, probably because she was, she was used to see me and hear me screaming and, and yelling. And I turned around and I looked at my son and I saw the fear in my eyes son. And he was two and a half years and that broke my heart. And I suddenly thought, oh, that's who I am now. That's who I became. But I knew deep down that I, that wasn't the real me. And it's like, what, what happened? And at that moment I thought, God, even if you don't do it for yourself, at least do it for, you, for your kids. I knew I had to do something. And it wasn't long after that I saw that woman again in my work. And I don't know if it was a sign for my higher power then, but um, that's, that's then, but that was my rock bottom where I saw me in a way that I really didn't like. And I knew it wasn't the real me. And that's what I think pushed me to really do something. Okay, thank you. So, Sarah, coming into FA, so what's it like at your first meeting? Uh, what a great question. Uh, my experience is a little unusual because when I came into FA, there was not only no FA in my local town, there was no FA in the whole of Australia, and there was actually no FA in the Southern Hemisphere. So I was passed on the, the message of, of FA recovery by a woman who was um, traveling from England. And then she went back to England and she continued to sponsor me. And for any listeners that don't know what a sponsor is, it's just kind of like a mentor who supports you in starting the program and maintaining a healthy relationship with food. And um, so I had a long distance sponsor and I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous until I had enough recovery to start a meeting. So you know, my experience is not of walking into a pre-existing meeting. It was of learning that, um, you know, um, starting meetings and trying to be of service to any food addicts who still might be struggling with their own disease, you know, that that was, that was going to have to be an, a necessary privilege um, is how I think of it. I, I guess I was thrust into, you know, that kind of service pretty young and early um, in my recovery because I didn't have the luxury of an existing fellowship when I came in. So how did you go about recovery then with not having people around you who were, who were recovered? Uh, well, I had the most wonderful experience um, of being welcomed by a very warm and loving global fellowship. So in our program, it's just, it's a very supportive fellowship because unlike many addicts who get to, for example, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you can put the cork in the bottle and put the bottle in the cupboard and not think about it, or you can stop using drugs for the rest of your life one day at a time. Us food addicts in recovery, we need to face our drug three times a day. So there's a real rigor around the support that we extend to one another. And part of that support includes regular phone calls with other recovering food addicts. And so I remember having the surreal experience of being in my first week of recovery and my English sponsor had flown back 
to Brighton, England, where she lived and um, taught me how to make international phone calls. But I was very overwhelmed and only 23 years old. And I remember coming in one day with my little backpack from uni and this was back in the day of, of answering machines. And I, I saw that I had, you know, the little flashing light telling me that someone had left a, a voicemail on my landline. And I was so excited. And, you know, there was this woman from England and she was like, oh, hello, Sarah. Yeah, I just wanted to say welcome to FA. I'm blah, blah from London. And, you know, I heard that you were a newcomer in program. And I was so chuffed by that. And then there was another message and it was like, hey, Sarah, it's, you know, so-and-so from LA in, in the USA. And I just want to say welcome to program. And I just was blown away that these strangers on the other side of the planet had taken the time to reach out to me. And it really struck me that there must be something authentically valuable about this program because who would figure out how to call this was pre-smartphone you know pre you know easy international calling this was back in the day when you had to dial a gazillion numbers on a phone card and these people obviously so believed in this program that they wanted to reach out to me and welcome me and I wasn't paying them it was you know they they didn't know me from a bar of soap yet they'd taken that time and, and made that effort to do it. It really was remarkable to me and, and, and spoke volumes about the value of this program. And so I started developing relationships with people all around the world and they nurtured and sustained me as I learned what it meant to live without addictive eating a day at a time and, you know, learn how to deal with the, the all of the emotions that I used to that I used to eat over, you know, we have a saying in FA, face your stuff, don't stuff your face. And I had a lot of support as I learned how to do that. Yeah, I, I guess as I grew in strength in my recovery, as I became more secure in learning how to, you know, stick to a food plan and, and maintain, um, you know, that freedom from addictive eating, I was able to start to do things like reach out to other food addicts locally and a fellowship started to spring up around me and I was extended um, a, a lot of, of help by other food addicts in recovery as that process unfolded. So how did it change your relationships with people and your family? Um, well, interestingly, there was a point in time where my entire immediate family was in, was in FA as we grew yeah, our little local fellowship in Melbourne. There was a time when at least half of us were, you know, people related to me. And that's not necessarily the case anymore. I think only one family member is, is still an active member of, of this program. But yeah, the, the relationships I have, particularly with my friends, I've relocated from Melbourne. I now live interstate. And yeah, the, the relationships that I have today, whether they're with work colleagues or my fellows or very close friends, a constant source of uh, amazement. I think, you know, what has happened for me is that very scared little girl who was wearing a mask and pretending everything is okay. Slowly over the years, I've learned to, yeah, to let people know when I need help and to let people know when I'm struggling and, and to learn to be vulnerable. And as a result, I have a lot of love and a lot of intimacy and a lot of closeness in my relationships, which I'm, um, yeah, I'm exceedingly grateful for. Thank you. So, Natalie, has FA changed your relationships with, you know, your family and work and friendships? The FA program has changed my relationship all, all the above, you know, all the relationships. First of all, with my family, my immediate family, everyone I'm thinking of, my husband and my, my kids. I mean, I have now an 18 years old and a 20 years old child. And I would hate to think what would be my house with a teenager and a young adult and me in, in you know um, eating uncontrollably it wouldn't be it wouldn't be pleasant and I feel I have a very close relationship with my children I have a very close relationship with my husband that I can call my best friend today I feel that we are we are really a team we know each other really well. We communicate that thing. We communicate a lot better. That's one thing that has changed. I mean, I, I would have in the past, before this program, I would have an argument and I would, again, yell and scream and be resentful to that particular person for days, for days, if not weeks. Today, 
if there is a disagreement and it happens, of course, you know, life is not perfect. Things still happen. But at least I can, I, I can stop and think and think about it and process it and, and talk about it and find, and find a solution or find an, a, 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 an outcome. So that's, that really has changed in that way. My relationship with my mum has changed as well a lot. I feel a lot closer to, to mum and my sister. The way my relationship changed in general in every area of my life, whether or not, whether it is friends, family, work, is I feel, you know, when I said earlier, I became a person that I, I didn't want to be. And today I feel I am who I am supposed to be. And I feel I am authentic. I am authentic, I am clear-minded, and I am present when I am around people. And because I feel a lot, I feel whole, that makes me, yeah, closer, closer to people, a lot closer. Like before I was so much in my head that I was disconnected. So I feel a lot more connected, if anything. Yeah, uh, in terms of my work, I have changed work since, since I've been in program. For a long time, and again, it was really a, a, a process to go through. But um, I am working for myself now, and I never ever thought that I would do that. I'm just like, no way! This is too hard. This is too scary. Um, and today, I have a lot more confidence. I still have fear. The fear is still there, but I'll do it anyway because I have um, I have calmness and and um, and 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 a way to process. To process things. Thank you. And how about you, Sarah? What's you know? How's life today for you? Um, life is honestly pretty wonderful. I, I wake up most mornings and I feel a sense of peace and optimism. Uh, I, uh, you know, it's the sort of stuff that honestly wouldn't be that impressive to any other adult. <laughs> um, but just the stuff, stuff, the, the the really simple things like the fact that my bed is made. Um, that my bills are paid, that I have uh, a, a wonderful job, that I feel a great sense of purpose and meaning in. Uh, I know I'm valued by my by my boss and by my colleagues. I have very close relationships with my colleagues. I feel like I'm able to, you know, sort of live a professional life that's very much aligned to my values, which I know a lot of people don't have the luxury of. So that's all all really wonderful. But the best stuff for me is my emotional stability and the sense of increasing self-love that I have, you know, that, that sort of self-hatred that really led me to hurt myself in my adolescence. Yeah, I just don't experience that viciousness between my ears anymore. I, I really experience a lot of self-care, a lot of self-regard. And um, I think it really is that simple thing that we talk about in 12-step recovery programs where my fellows have loved me back to life and, and taught me what it means to really care for myself, which is not what I used to think, which was kind of, you know, getting a bunch of external praise or accolades or, you know, um, chasing hedonistic ephemeral pleasures. It's really, it's kind of the nuts and bolts of being a grown up and being responsible. And, and um, it, sound, it might sound really boring, but it's so exciting to me to come from that history of total unmanageability and rebellion and you know pleasure seeking to to just kind of live a life that's characterized by a lot of love a lot of laughter and um, a sense of purpose thank you uh well that's about all we've got time for today uh, so i'd like to thank natalie and sarah for sharing their food acts and recovery anonymous experience with us thank you both thanks so much bill thank you for having us uh, if you'd like to find out more about Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, uh, then you can find them on 1-800-717-446 or go online at foodaddicts.org. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature members from Al-Anon family groups and we'll be talking about the family disease of alcoholism. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned now for Alternative. Alternative.